Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, welcome. This is our uh, our holiday show about the problem of evil. Um, doesn't really fit, does it, somehow? But we, we hope it will somehow. We hope it will. I mean, it does, actually, really, if you think about it. Um, all right, so... Um, First of all, let me tell you who's here in the studio. Uh, with us uh, is Keith DeRose, a professor of philosophy at Yale. Uh, Frank Kirkpatrick, returning to the show, uh, a professor of religion at Trinity College. Uh, and uh, you're, you're, you're an ordained Episcopal priest, too, right? That's right. Okay, so so we've got all the firepower we need for evil here today. So uh, one of my associations is more than 40 years ago, Philip Reef wrote this book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Um, and its central argument was that 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 illness was replacing evil, that the psychological person was replacing the religious person, that we were not going to be able. I mean, it was a very declinist book, right? It was a, he was going to he said basically was saying we're not going to be able to function in the kinds of moral terms that we traditionally had functioned in. Um, and and everything is going to be very relativistic. He actually anticipated Oprah pretty well, but um, uh, but on the other hand, so but his his argument really was that we were going to speak more psychologically about ourselves. In fact, um, the subtitle was "The Uses of Faith After Freud." We were going to speak about ourselves more psychologically than religiously. But when bad things happen, we really do default to the most stark and religious language possible. So um, here's uh, Dan Malloy in one of his early statements uh, after Newtown. Evil visited this community today. Here's President Obama also talking about Newtown. In the face of indescribable violence, in the face of unconscionable evil, you've looked out for each other, and you've cared for one another, and you've loved one another. This is how Newtown will be remembered. So evil is not a very scientific word. It's, it's not a psychological word, Philip Reef notwithstanding. But it's a word that it's not a very apt description of Adam Lanza either, probably. Um, but it's a word people seem to need to hear at that moment and say at that moment. So, Frank, why is that? Why, why in those situations do we, even if we are fairly scientific, humanistic, secular, do we default back to a word like evil? Because I think we want a sense of meaning out of what otherwise would be a completely meaningless set of events. We want to give some kind of coherence uh, to what's happened. And the word evil, the concept of evil, which itself is very, very open-ended, I think, is the one that comes most to mind. And it's one that's been, of course, part of the religious tradition of the West. We also have tended um, to demarcate between, say, maybe natural evil and personal evil, right? So there's the bubonic plague and there's Pol Pot. Um, they, one of them just seems to be happening. Maybe God should be stopping it, Keith. Uh, maybe uh, the other one is the result of some fallenness uh, of humans. But then also there's this kind of middle ground, and you could put Adam Lanza in that middle ground, right? He's not exactly Paul Pot. He's 
the product of a kind of disaster. Something really kind of went wrong. Um, and his intentionality is tinctured by the sense that he has some kind of a disease. So first of all, do we still do we still demarcate things that way? I mean, do we still talk about an earthquake or the bubonic plague as evil, or is that a kind of outdated language? Um, when we talk about the problem of evil in philosophy, um, most many of the examples are just examples of natural evil. Um, I think Adam Lanza in, in the Newtown case, um, what we're responding to is just the tremendous suffering. And um, there's a need... For explanation, I think that's where the terminology, morally loaded terminology comes from, um, just the need to make sense of it. So, um, well, let me come back to that in a second. Uh, you know, um, okay, I'm going to use one of my time-worn theories that readers, listeners of the show may have heard before. But so, Frank, one of the things um, that I thought about around the time that Reef's book came out um, in the not-too-distant future, um, the movie The Exorcist came out. And it was sort of right around the same same time. Exorcist might have even been before the book. So, and, and, and obviously it was a novel, then it was a movie. So I would sit in movie theaters watching this movie, and people would watch be watching this scenario unfolding uh, where um, the mother's first response, the mother of the child, the mother of Regan, uh, her first response is in fact therapeutic, right? She goes and she gets a psychiatrist and there's a neurological, neurological workup and a spinal tap and hypnotists are brought in and all this sort of therapeutic technique is brought in um, and, and everybody in the movie theater because they know the title of the movie and they know what's happening they're all sitting there saying well don't do that get an exorcist this is not a problem uh, that requires therapy this is a problem that requires a priest you don't know what you're doing and it struck me at a time that, that at that moment that the movie and the popularity of the movie was were an expression of anxiety about that question were we still going to talk about things and think about things uh, in starkly moral terms or were we, in fact, as Reef thought, going to default into purely thera- therapeutic language? But I think we have our answer now. Th- th- these words are never going away. Right. And the first responders, if you want to put it that way, to the problem of evil are often people who provide temporary solutions. But when you push far enough and deep enough into the problem, there's a desire for some more cosmic, some more ontological, if I can use that word, Explanation. It's not going to be resolved just by getting better health clinic, mental health clinics available for people who are suffering from mental illness of some kind. There's some something more cosmic, something deeper at stake. Um, as we go along here, by the way, um, if you have questions, comments, you can call in. We're live in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. I'm not sure if philosophy and theology are that amenable to call-in shows, but we can try 860-275-7266. I do especially encourage you, you to tweet us at WNPR, Colin. Greg Hill, our tweet master, is there. So, Keith, I mean, if we're going to look for cosmic solutions, right, right away we do run into problems, right? We run into problems if, in fact, we're going to begin talking about God. This has been a problem in, in theology and philosophy all along. In fact, uh, Randy Newman wrote um, an opera version of Faust uh, in which James Taylor sings the part of God. And God uh, slash James Taylor express in this little clip you're about to hear um, uh, uh, an issue that scholars might refer to as theodicy.
know it. Come on. All right, so that's God talking. Uh, you know, if there's a God, why is all this bad stuff happening? That's the Odyssey, right? That's the Odyssey. It's the scope of the problem. You think the only solution could be God. Um, but then the issue is when you look to God for help, the experience of humankind is typically we get no response. So we've, but we've got a few choices here in terms of thinking about why does evil exist. Um, uh, you could probably run through them more effectively than I can. But, I mean, one of them is that at least human evil exists because there's free will. Um, and, and we might ask, why, why, why is there free will? Why doesn't God set up everything really, really nice? Um, so what are some of the answers to that question? Well, the free will defense, I think, is like one of the only stories we've got going. Um, and the problem is um, it doesn't seem to help that much right? because if the story is um, God wants us to freely do good things, and even an omnipotent God can't make you freely do the good thing, um, so even an omnipotent God has to take a risk that you'll do the wrong thing and then evil results, it still doesn't explain why we're put in a situation where seemingly silly little choices can end up with horrific results. Um, and so following up on that, I think the best place to go is to, um, and here I'm um, using some constructions John Hick uses, mm. which is try to imagine what the world would be like without any bad things at all, for one thing. And you can start getting a feel for, well, that would actually be kind of empty. Um, there are certain values that are attained only if there's bad things that happen. And then you think, well, okay, bad things, but why should they get so horrible? Mm-hmm. Right? Shouldn't God be putting a limit on how bad they get? And then the, the hick imaginative strategy kicks in again. So imagine the world has bad stuff, but it never gets really bad never gets horrible. Here, too, there are certain values that can't be realized. If you were able to go through life knowing, oh, it'll never get very bad, there are certain things that um, wouldn't be called for, like heroic responses to evils, Um, carrying on courageously and in faith um, without knowing that it won't get so bad. For all you know, it'll be horrible, but you press on anyway. Um, So hopefully, if there is an answer, and there may not be, um, but hopefully if there is, I think it's got to be in that direction. Frank, Frank, does that resonate for you, or do you see this a different way? No, I see that pretty much the way Keith does. And I'm more inclined, I think, to accept the free will argument, at least for some examples of evil. But, But evil is a sliding scale kind of thing. There's a judgment that has to be made. When I go into the uh, emergency room for an operation, I'm going to feel pain. I will suffer for a period of time, but I'm glad for that suffering. I'm glad for the pain because the end result is that I will come out, I hope, more healthy than when I went in. So is pain and suffering in and of themselves? I don't think are necessarily to be equated with evil. It depends on the scope, on the degree of, of suffering, and whether it for me, evil is when the potential of people to achieve their full flourishing is cut off with no justification whatsoever. And just to anticipate where we might go eventually with this conversation, I think we have to reconceive our idea of God and God's relationship to what we call evil. So say what you mean. Well, I think the idea that God is 
omnipotent and exercises his omnipotence at all times and in all places, is a non-starter. It basically winds up justifying anything that takes place in the universe because it can all be attributed to God. And if that's the case, then there's no more problem of evil. There's just evil, and there's no way to explain it except by laying it all at the doorstep of God. Um, I want to come back to that, but also I feel I see what my job is here. So half the time, half the time I play the opposite side, but I'll play this side because I shared a stage last night with, for, with Daniel Dennett for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I can be a humanist uh, and a secularist uh, and maybe even an atheist now for the purposes of this discussion. So if Dennett were here, he would be saying, Keith, well, this talk about free will is ridiculous. There really is. I mean, it's. It's ridiculous not in the way that a theologian might say it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous in the sense that really most of our behaviors are the result of this kind of vast competitive reality show game that's taking place in our neurons. You know, that for for ways that really aren't morally interesting, uh, uh, our behaviors are not as controlled as we think they are. They're the product of all kinds of uh, of per- perceptive codes and 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 this notion even of the self is really kind of an illusion. It's something that we use to kind of help us recognize patterns in our own environment, but it doesn't really exist the way that we think it does. So I guess one of the questions I would ask you as a philosopher is, can we have a conversation about evil with no God in it uh, and with a sort of Dennett-like view of free will? Well, I suspect um, belief in God and belief in a non-Dennett-like view of free will um, come as a package. So I believe um, the free will defense has terrific limits. It can't re- free will by itself can't explain why God would allow horrible evils. Mm-hmm. But I do think, and, and maybe Frank and I are not so far apart, I do believe um, human free will is a, um, a, a prerequisite um, for any type of good theistic explanation. Um, I'm... Th- the the limits of the free will defense are if if what God wants is us freely doing good things, he could surely put us in an environment in which it's easier to do so. Um, so I'm thinking it must be that there's a value to be attained in us not only being free, but it is required, but not only being free, but being free in a situation where it's very difficult sometimes to do the right thing. Um, but get rid of free will, I don't see much potential for um, belief in God to survive that myself. Um, so so that he may, he may be right that um, or, um, if you give up one of these things, you might have to give them both up. I mean, just to go back to the point that both of you made, all right, so that in some ways virtue as we conceive it. Towards the end of the show, I want to talk about a slightly more secularized version of this argument. But that virtue as we conceive it and, and all of the things that um, impregnate the world with, with moral meaning are impossible in two of Keith's scenarios, or, or I guess they're Hicks's scenarios, one of them in which like nothing bad ever happens uh, or, and the other of which – like bad things happen, but you know there's kind of a ceiling, or I guess in the case of bad, a floor below which bad cannot go, uh, then it becomes kind of difficult for there to be virtue, for there to be um, meaningful moral action. But Frank, some people would look at that and say, well, I mean, if we're going to sit, you know, position God as kind of this, you know, gigantic cosmic watchmaker, this clockmaker who who sets up this process and then maybe kind of steps away from it. That's a pretty high price to pay 
for the kinds of things we're talking about, that there are going to be earthquakes where people die and brush fires where people burn up, and there's going to be Auschwitz, uh, and, and there's going to be mass shootings. There are going to be all this horrible stuff, and the reason for it is because it's impossible for us to conceive of virtue without it. Some people would argue, wow, the price of admission is kind of steep there. Or maybe I'm misstating the argument. No, I, I think you got the argument right. And it is too high a price. I think that if you constantly refer back to God must have a plan for this or that this is all ultimately in God's hands, you wind up justifying a child getting cancer at the age of two and dying from it painfully. You, you justify the Holocaust. You justify all sorts of atrocious things that human beings have done with their freedom. And therefore, you've, I think you have a, have a choice. Either God is somehow in the structures of reality and unable either by his very nature or by some kind of decision to limit his power, God is unable to overcome these obstacles that give rise to our conception of evil. And that's a rethinking of the concept of God, which I think we have to think about more seriously if we're going to at least approach the question of evil in a serious way. Well, I'll push back against that and say you could just as easily, I suppose, say God is in everything. God is in every single little thing. Um, God is in the stock market. God is in the mass killer. God is in Adam Lanza at that particular moment. That you know, you could compare it to what physicists think about field theory, uh, or radical physicists like John Archibald Wheeler would say uh, that you know, there's just one electron, you know, and because of what space and time are, it can exploit all of that to create everything that we see around us. Um, and and that basically these are just sort of patterns uh, taking place in, in, in this world that that. God, you know, I guess I'm talking about kind of a Spinozan pantheist pantheism. kind of God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this kind of pantheist God, I think, I mean, then, then you may as well simply stop talking about the problem of evil. Everything is what it is, and it makes no sense to make a value judgment about it unless you want to do it at a purely subjective level. And at that case, you don't really have a problem of evil anymore. Everything is just what it is, and you don't need to say anything more about it. All right, we're going to grab a call here from Philip. I can't believe we're taking calls about the nature of evil, but, you know, what, is, what else is radio for? Hi, Philip from Hamden. You're on the air. Hi. You know, I think um, maybe your guests are being too kind in this uh, circumstance. It seems to me that Hume got it right, that the existence of evil really disproves the existence of the conventional notion of God. That is, God, the all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing creator, that any of the attempts to defend God, so to say, any of the theodicies, are just riddled with problems, some of which your guests have already pointed out. But I think, uh, I think the existence of evil clearly shows that the universe is, cannot be governed by a good God. And um, reference to Spinoza is to refer to a conception of God that is so different from that that's held by most believers of the monotheistic tradition? Um, first of all, I'm, I'm going to let the panelists formulate their answer to that, but uh, just in, perhaps on a slightly lighter note, here's uh, Woody Allen in Love and Death. His character Boris is pondering this exact question. If it turns out that there is a God, I don't think that he's evil. I think that, that the worst you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. <laughs> okay, so that's one way of looking at it, that, 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 you know, he could have done better. Um, but um, so his question is an interesting one. And Keith, I'm going to let you um, tackle this first, that uh, if, in fact, you're going to acknowledge uh, all this horrible stuff, then you pretty much have to forget about God. Um, yeah, well, look, 
if there I guess that depends on the thought that there are no values at all that could be realized um, in the th presence of horrific evils um, that couldn't be realized without them. Um, and I don't find that thought compelling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the price of admission may be too high. This is a real problem. And it, it, I've said anybody who's not at least tempted toward atheism by the problem of evil is probably got something wrong with them. But um, it's, I don't think it's a knockdown compelling argument as long as you can see the potential for there to be some goods that God might be shooting for that can be realized only with, only in the face of horrific evil. Um, and it doesn't seem to me clear that that's um, not the case. So, Frank, I, can, I know already you're not prepared to take God off the table just because there's evil. No, I'm not. Uh, but I do think it needs a reconception of God. God is not the all-determining, powerful being. You know, the old conundrum is if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil? Well, I would split that a little bit and say God is all good, intends all good, but is not all powerful. And maybe God, what God intends us to do is to join God in the fight against evil. Evil may be part of the structures of reality. I mean, we can't have the world that we live in without the possibility of moisture. Moisture creates hurricanes. Hurricanes destroy large portions of the, of the universe, and, or at least of the world, and the human beings who live on it. It's part of a package deal, and that may, that may be something that we have to reconceive if we're going to understand how God is involved in the problem of evil. But if there's no God, then there is no problem of evil. It all comes down to a subjective evaluation of whether I like this particular experience or I don't like it. But, Frank, um, aren't you thinking in terms of a reason God might have for perhaps taking some kind of non-interventionist policy? Right. So he could still be omnipotent but just have good reason to back off and perhaps call us to address the evil or something like that. I think there are two options here, and that's certainly one of them. It would be the one I'm inclined toward. But there's another version of this notion of God as somewhat limited that comes out of what's called process philosophy or process theology, and it says God is ontologically necessarily limited. Otherwise, he couldn't be in interaction with other beings. So, right, I would say that from a theological or a religious perspective, God is implicated in the evil of the world, but as, to use Alfred North Whitehead's term, a fellow sufferer who understands. Um, I, Ian, Keith, I want to go back to something that Frank said, and then I'm going to take a call from Jim, and then we're going to go to break. But um, So Frank, in his last, his previous set of comments, said, well, if you're going to take God out of the picture, then what, you might as well not talk about evil at all. It's really just, you're just talking about things that you don't like as opposed to things that you like. I think it could be argued, if we had like a really good, you know, fish-shaking atheist here, um, uh, it would be argued, well, no. Because, in fact, we form communities. Like, atheists really believe in communities. They love communities. And the communities have to be able to talk about stuff, right? They have to be able to talk about stuff and use what sounds like moral language. But still, I mean, who knows what Dan Malloy really thinks about the nature of evil and the way that we're talking about it right now, or President Obama, for that matter. But in order to lead a community uh, and to give voice to a community's thoughts and to enforce norms, you have to start using this kind of language no matter what it means to you. Um, if God exists, um, the sense that this isn't just happening, there's someone to be angry at, there's somebody who should be stopping this, 
um, might be one of the things within us that is our most powerful call toward belief in God. Um, I haven't been part of such an atheist community, um, but trying to imagine myself into it, um, it seems like the explanations would give. I, for one, would want somebody to shake my fist at. Um, of course, this community can't do anything. It's a, a problem beyond the scope of their ability to address. I still want to be mad at somebody. Um, and um, I think that sense is what drives people towards belief in God. I think also, though, and then I'll get to Jim and then we'll, we'll take this break. But I just want to stay this, with this for a second, Keith. Um, Adam Lanza had a disease. Um, that disease was not cystic fibrosis, however. It was a different kind of disease. People with cystic fibrosis, people with MS, they don't kill other people. They, this Adam Lanza had a disease. We tend not to attach moral language to disease, but here in this case, maybe we need moral language, need a word like evil to differentiate Adam Lanza's disease from the, from the normal diseases. If the disease can be normal if from Frank's uh, example of a child with cancer. It's, just, it's not the same thing. So how is it not the same thing? Because one of them results in evil. And does that work for you at all or would you push back against that? I would tend to push back against that. I Good. would think um, um, – if this really is a disease, if this is beyond his control, we might be compelled to blame someone who really shouldn't be blamed. I don't know enough about Adam Lanza to make a judgment about the particular case. But one could imagine, so let me get rid of the actual case, one could imagine a situation where somebody is not responsible for something horrific they did, and we would be very inclined to try to find them responsible because we see the horror of what's been wrought, we feel some somebody has to be to blame. Um, and it may be us as a human race that's to blame. If we had spent half our ingenuity and resources in investigating medicine rather than in figuring out new ways to kill each other with sophisticated weapons, it may be that we would have come up with a cure for cancer for infants much, much long before this time that we're in now. So there's a kind of collective guilt that I think we have to own as well. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump said it last night. Donald Trump, of all people, he said, give me that $4 trillion that we spent on war and deposing despots and stuff like that, and I can uh, fix up the world for you uh, much better. All right. Uh, as we head towards the break here, I do want to get uh, Jim on the air. Jim from Newtown, he's been uh, holding on. You're on the air, Jim. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Colin. Very briefly, uh, what a great conversation. And I was struck uh, earlier when you said, you know, this idea of what if God is within it, us all, and also what your guest just said there about our collective responsibility. And in just 10 seconds here, I just want to affirm that in the midst of all the struggle to comprehend something totally incomprehensible, uh, we are doing our best to try to choose love. And I think that, well, God is, uh, I believe, is within everyone. Uh, many of us get disconnected from that awareness, so it's incumbent on all of us to the degree that we sense some mysterious, beautiful, lovely thing to try to transmit that to other people in the smallest of ways and overcome the isolation that can lead to the kind of catastrophe, in whether medical and, and then compounded by this, this sickening militarization of our society and weaponry, which must be addressed. All of us are responsible, yes, and all of us are trying to choose love. And so in this season, thanks for this conversation. And uh, lots of love to you guys. What a great point. I couldn't have said it better. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for your call. Let's take a break. We'll go back. Uh, we'll come back with more, although time is flying. 
So uh, we're back. We're talking about the problem of evil. Uh, we're talking to Keith DeRose, a professor of philosophy at Yale, Frank Kirkpatrick, professor of religion at Trinity College, and uh, an Episcopal priest as well. So, uh, you know, in the previous segment, we were we kind of wound up talking about that question of responsibility and blame and stuff like that. And I, I'd like to sort of stay with that for a moment because it seems to me that whether we're going to go with um, if we were going to go, go with the supernatural model of evil, uh, in some respects, we take the blame away from people. We say, uh, well, okay, so it wasn't so much – let's take somebody who does something really bad. Let's take um, a Catholic priest who molests boys. Uh, we can say – if we go with the supernatural model, we, say, we will say, well, I mean, it wasn't really you. Some, something invaded you uh, and – uh, something corrupted you. Um, maybe you had some role in that, but it wasn't entirely your fault. And if we go with the disease model, we say the same thing, right? You've got a disease. You can't control it. Um, we can, within the framework of ethics, Frank, begin start start constructing frameworks for that person to live in. Like, okay, so you know that about yourself. You have to do a whole bunch of things. But it it, it does... I mean, I think when evil happens, one of the things we're doing is looking for someone to blame. And each of these models, in a way, take people off the hook. I think that's true, although I would continue to put the emphasis not so much on uh, blame as explanation. We, mm-hmm. want, we want to make sense of this. And one of the conceptions of God that I think has fallen out of favor, and I think for good reason, is that God uses evil to test people's faith. So the more evil you undergo, the more God loves you because he is really using that that trial to test the degree of your faithfulness in God. That, it strikes to me, is is reprehensible. It's an abominable way of understanding evil. So we come back to something like, what are the values, to go back to Keith's term, what are the values that God is intending to accomplish in the world? And how are those values actually going to reach people and how are they going to act in response to them? That's the better question rather than trying to find blame rather than explain. And, and I know, Keith, you've been doing a lot of work in the area of free will. And I'm going to try to set you up, but I may do a bad job. So we'll take the model that I just laid out for Frank. So you have um, a priest who is molesting boys. Um, so there are questions about how much free will he has uh, in, in that situation. If he has a disease, he may not have that much free will. If he's been invaded by uh, dark forces, he may not have that much free will. Although we could go kick it up a rung and say church leaders who ignore this problem and reinsert this priest into situations where he can do more harm, those people really do have quite a bit of free will, which they are exercising for evil. So I, I don't know how that plays with the way that you're looking at free will these days. Um, yeah, so the, the the underlying problem is that we live in a world where we're incredibly vulnerable to becoming both the victims but also um, the perpetrators of horrific things. It, it turns out, I guess, that it doesn't take much to turn ordinary people into monsters I mean, who are capable and willing to do something really, really bad, that really, really hurtful to somebody. Um, and that, that to me is the, the real problem of evil, which is why would God put us in a situation where, where we're so vulnerable to things going so badly wrong. Um, that's 
what uh, Ernest Becker sometimes refers to as the spell cast by persons, Frank. So one thing we knew we know post-Holocaust is one way that you can get people to do something evil, if you're evil, uh, or if you have evil plans, is to persuade them they're not doing something evil, to remove moral calculations from them and say, look, there is a higher purpose. We're pursuing that higher purpose. I'll explain to you what that higher purpose is, and then you just do what I tell you to. And we know even from the Milgram experiments down at Yale that it's relatively easy to get people to do things that seem pretty evil and violent, like shock another person who seems to be not only in pain but maybe dying from the shock that you're applying. Not because you think you're doing you're doing evil, but because human beings are relatively cooperative about surrendering their moral judgment to somebody else who will take it on. That's one of the dangers. And it seems to me we've got to pay attention to the degree to which we become dupes of those who are in a position of demagoguery and try to convince us to join them in their uh, attempts to bring evil further into the world. It put, But it, it requires our free will, our choices, to put ourselves in a position where we aren't duped by people who are seeking to use us and exploit us in that way. And that, I think that's a better response than trying to find someone to blame, such as God. And God, I mean, we can always quibble about the mar- at the margins. Did God make too many things in the world, like hurricanes and natural disasters, did he make make it too hard for us? Well, we can quibble about that, but in the end, God is, at least from a religious point of view, it seems to me, God is there helping people struggle against evil, encouraging them, building them up, comforting them when the, when when it doesn't go well. Um, let's grab a call or two. We've got a Kevin from Madison on the line. Hi, Kevin. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. Uh, you know, I just wanted to sort of uh, approach the subject from a slightly different perspective. Uh, I've been studying uh, Buddhism and uh, Zen in particular for a number of years now, and uh, it seems, and I, I, I don't propose to speak for the entire uh, religion or philosophy, but it seems as though uh, the concepts of good and evil um, don't really exist in, uh, in Zen and Buddhism in general. Uh, there are more concepts that are uh, invented in our own minds. Um, so it's it's sort of uh, a relative thing. So um, one person's evil uh, can be very different uh, to another person's evil. Uh, so it all depends on uh, the circumstances of a, a person and their uh, you know life's journey. Um, so it's 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 very um, uh, uh, relative, and uh, it really depends on on who the the individual is. Uh, where they are in their life's journey, at what point in time they are, and uh, it's it, it can be very, uh, very uh, sort of uh, you know different depending on on, yeah, on each person's uh, perspective. Uh, I mean, take ISIS for example. I mean, they uh, are performing evil acts from our perspective, but from them their perspective, uh, they're you know this is the, the most noble uh, actions that they they can be taking. Right. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I will be a villain. Uh, or at least very, very, very few people do that. Uh, most people think that they are behaving morally or, or religiously, particularly when they engage in uh, extreme behavior. It's a great point, uh, Kevin. Thanks so, so, so much for your call. Wow, this show is kind of racing by. I think what I'll do is I'll take a break here. We've got some calls from Tom, uh, Brett, Jonathan. Oh, could I just say one thing about this? 
Not that I'm the guest on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I, I, first of all, Kevin, I just thank you for that perspective. And I, I've really been trying to think a lot about um, that kind of thinking, that pr- primarily Buddhist thinking, uh, and how it squares up with quantum theory. And it's really kind of interesting. You get down to the quantum level, there's this kind of notion that reality may not be made up of much of anything, uh, but in that that most of what we think about the about objects and, and individual things within reality are, is, is a kind of pattern recognition uh, that just as the way the Buddhists would say all uh, ideas of separateness and separation are, those are the illusion. There's sort of a quantum parallel to this, and if I were a better scientist, I could explain it better. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. And I use my head. Now I think it's time you learned what dear old mama said. Don't you want to be evil? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McEvil and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zachary LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by David Clayton Thomas. For show pages, articles, and our secret plan to replace here and now with good and evil, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the odyssey of basketball star Vin Baker. And now... Back to Colin. We should also mention uh, our primary example of pure goodness, uh, Bitsy Kaplan, who's running around trying to make sure that evil and chaos do not take over. Uh, and uh, she's doing so right now. Uh, maybe the best tweet uh, of the day, uh, Nancy. I wonder if that's my Nancy, my pastor. Uh, what if we are in the middle of the sixth day afternoon and God isn't done with creation? Chaos and evil may exist, and we may have to cooperate with him in the finished product. Interesting. That's theologically a very interesting idea. Uh, All right, so, or a very interesting way of putting that idea. All right, so we are talking about evil. Uh, With us is Frank Kirkpatrick. He's a professor of religion at Trinity College uh, and an Episcopal Episcopal priest. Keith DeRose is a professor of philosophy at Yale. Uh, There's so much to say and so little time here. I would point out that, you know, we never really lose interest in in this. I mean, people are getting in line right now for the new Star Wars movie uh, in which there's the dark force, you know, the dark force. What could be a better statement of the notion of pure evil and evil that might corrupt uh, another person uh, than than Star Wars? So there's and there's a reason some of these franchises kind of have this mythic hold over us. Um, We've got some calls coming in here. I'd like to get one or two of them on the air. Here's Tom from Windsor. Hi, Tom. Uh, Hi, Colin. Um, I'd like uh, your guests to comment on a, uh, a study I read a couple years ago where a neurologist went into uh, death row inmates, uh, serial killers, and they would show pictures of uh, a normal person. Uh, Their brain would light up uh, for empathy. But he put these other people, the supposedly evil ones, and that particular area of the brain did not light up at all, which showed they had no empathy. And maybe this concept of evil is just a, a brain function. Well, Daniel Dennett would probably say, you're right. Um, and Keith, one point that you made earlier, well, it doesn't take much to get people to, to switch people over from flip that switch from good to evil. Um, in that study, I'd be a little bit concerned about neuroplasticity. Sometimes when people do things, it changes their brain. Uh, so people who are who are on death row for having murdered somebody else, it's not necessarily just the case that the brain drives actions. Sometimes actions drive the brain. Uh, but it, but it's one of the models we have, right? This is a broken kind of person. This person will therefore do what we call evil. Um, yes, yeah, so, 
I guess if you're thinking of us as free agents, um, you might think of the um, structure of the brain and the situation people find themselves in as the environment they have to struggle against. Um, um, so um, any human being might have a <laughs> – we all have great tendency um, to easily become perpetrators of evil. Um, I'm sitting here with a Calvin College T-shirt where I was taught about the total depravity of humankind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, among the many things they told me, that seems right. Um, so um, it could be different people have different levels of struggle. Um, and some of us, um, it's quite easy in the situations we find ourselves in to avoid doing something really horrible. Um, and then it's incumbent on all of us to realize how easily even we could be turned um, if we found ourselves in the wrong environment. And if you start thinking about how your brain is wired as being part of your environment, um, then that thought becomes even more compelling. Although Calvin Calvin kind of is the ultimate watch, watchmaker, right? I mean, it's, like, yeah. it's fitting because he's Swiss, but your, your grace, God's grace is irresistible. Your election to God's grace is unconditional. Yeah. You can't do anything to change mm. it. Um, the, the atonement of Jesus Christ is, is limited. Uh, so you just have to sit there and wait, let the whole yeah. watch tick down to see it's, what happens to you. I was telling Frank before the show started that oh, I went to Calvin College, and um, it turns out that Alvin Plantinga, the, the formulator of the free will defense, the 20th century version of it, um, is it, this, which rested with all its weight on a libertarian account of free will. It's like one of the great ironies of 20th century philosophy that that free will defense emanated from John Calvin's college. Um, and I, too, come from there, um, but I, too, <laughs> believe we can't make this work with a deterministic God. Right. Did you uh, want to elaborate? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It seems to me that Calvin... In the end, sort of like Spinoza from, a, from another perspective philosophically, has no problem of evil because everything is under the control of God and God cannot do evil. And that just simply gets rid of the problem, but gets rid of the problem at an unacceptably high price. Um, let's grab a, a call or two more here. Uh, as I say, this has got to be one of the first call-in shows on the problem of evil, but it might take off. There might be more of them. Here's Brett from Newington. Hi, Brett. Hey, how are you? The definition of magic and its numerous spellings, one of the definitions is kind of like a blanket term for um, describing something that cannot be described. Well, that's just magic. Like, um, But we all know, many of us know that magic can be misdirection or um, sleight of hand or special tools like the you know fake thumb or whatever. The translation that's physical. The translation in like spiritual or um, um, ecclesiastical is evil and good or angels and demons to describe things that are beyond our meager understandings. That's you, my thought. You, it's, it, well, it certainly, Frank, goes to, like, if you go back to where we started here on this show, you know, uh, what's President Obama going to say? You know, what's what's Dan Malloy going to say about something like Newtown? There isn't probably another set uh, of compelling vocabularies for something as terrible as that. I assume that's what Brett means by things that you can't explain. Something just happened. Children, innocent children have just died. So what language do we have for it other than evil? 
I don't, well, Dennett would have a very different language for it, but mm -hmm. it would be a language that I suspect would not be satisfying to most people because he doesn't get to the depth of reality. So it seems to me that some of the traditional views of evil, particularly related to a god who in some way is struggling along with human beings to get rid of evil, has far more resonance than does this, the scientific, the therapeutic language that you were referring to at the beginning. You know, I, I just want to go back to, because I, I promised that I would. I don't know how useful it's going to be. But I want to go back to something you said, Keith, early on, and I said that I would come back to it. Okay, so that notion that um, that evil is necessary theologically for us to understand virtue, there's also kind of a completely secular argument that evil is useful, that what we think of as dark side traits that are expressed at lower level, things like uh, narcissism uh, and dominance and aggression and strategic manipulation and selfishness, that these are actually necessary for the function of a society that, you know, you can't really make progress um, if you don't. It, it's kind of like Hicks's second model. If there's not at least a low level of this stuff, um, you you need some of this stuff. I don't know. I'm, I, all of my references come from popular culture. So I'm thinking of the moment in, in Witness where the Amish guy in his buggy is being taunted by these uh, completely horrible, evil punks. Um, and uh, Harrison Ford is supposed to be uh, undercover, but he's dressed as an Amish man. And he gets up and it's clear he's going to punch them out. Uh, and the Amish guy says, it's not our way. And he goes, well, it's my way. <laughs> and he goes and punches them, and it's extremely satisfying. So here are these Amish people trying to be really good, you know, and their definition of good is that you don't respond to evil with, to evil with evil. Um, Harrison Ford really is advancing a competing philosophical argument, which is actually if you completely empty your chamber of all responses that fall somewhere within the rubric of evil, you're not going to be able to function. Uh, yes, well, from um, the Christian perspective, I've looked. I've grew up with um, the thought is God is struggling with us and actually through us against evil. Um, and in some cases, it it looks like that takes the place. It takes the um, form of um, some kinds of violence. Um, but oftentimes, and and this is like the great Christian example. You have a God who not only struggles against evil, but somehow manages to make himself a victim of it, right. to be tortured to death. Um, and so anyone working in the Christian tradition has to um, take that example very seriously and think, well, at least sometimes the way to respond to evil is to absorb it, um, to to take it, um, and and oftentimes that's like our only alternative anyway. Well, and and um, I don't mean to preempt what you're going to say, Franco. Maybe you can fold it into what I'm about to ask. But the other the other part of Jesus is that he's a complex actor prior to the point that he's tortured and killed. He's a complex actor. He does a lot of things that might fall with once again within the framework of what I just described. He occasionally sounds somewhat narcissistic. He's often um, angry. Uh, he even will berate his followers and say they're fools. They're not getting it. What's wrong with you people? Are you not even listening to me? And you know, I mean, it is most aggressive. He goes in the temple starts flipping tables over, um, doing stuff that uh, in another context might be described as not exactly evil, but low level um, uh, behavior that, that's somewhere on the continuum running up to evil. Well, part of human life is figuring out how to resist things that, that help to define who we are. I mean, without resistance, it's like that old cultural phrase, no pain, no gain, without some kind of pain, 
there is no development of the human person. But none of Jesus's acts harmed other people. They may have gotten in the way of what other people intended to do, but they didn't harm them. And what comes out of that Christian story, uh, particularly of the crucifixion, which Keith was alluding to, is the willingness of Christians to persevere in the face of evil. If God could undergo evil without retaliating in violence, then human beings can persevere and trust that God will somehow be with them in the midst of the evil that they're undergoing. Um, this is... Um uh, you have two minutes left. I shouldn't ask this question, but I'll, I'll ask it really quickly. So people, uh, Keith, watch um, TV shows these days in which Walter White uh, is a, a guy who makes meth, you know, and destroys people's lives. But there's something kind of heroic about him to people. People think, well, this is a system that's so fallen, so evil. Frank Underwood on, uh, you know, uh, on that series, uh, the guy played by Kevin Spacey, um, is a similar kind of thing. Uh, House of Cards. Um that these systems are so fallen, so evil, that the only way to function within them is to be a different kind of evil and stick it to the man. Like, if you hate the world and you hate the system, then you're much more attracted to an evil actor. Um, yes, but the, the other alternative is to withdraw from the system. I mean, that's a that's a great Christian tradition as well. Um, and um, um, just don't take part in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we, we are going to have to start. It was an unfair question anyway. We have to. We have, this is a whole other show. Like, why are we actually attracted um, to evil characters? Why do they intrigue us? Why does Satan get all the good lines in Paradise Lost? Uh, it's a whole other question here. All right. Thanks so much to Jonathan McNichol, who conceived of this show for us. Uh, Keith DeRose, professor of philosophy at Yale. Frank Kirkpatrick, uh, a professor of religion at Trinity College, ordained Episcopal priest. Uh, you've been great guests. You're a good team. Take it on the road. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow with a kind of a different, well, not a different story, a story of some redemption. It's the story of Vin Baker, an NBA all-star, an Olympic basketball player who lost everything from alcoholism and has taken a long road back. He's a pastor now. He's uh, a manager at Starbucks. So it's Jesus and Java uh, saving this guy. Mm-hmm.